All right, let's take out our Bibles once again. Find Romans chapter 8. I can't hear myself. Usually that's a good thing, but can anybody else hear me or no? Am I on? There we go. Thank you, John. Romans chapter 8, or page 1201 if you need that to find it quicker. If you're just joining us this morning, we've been studying through Paul's letter to the Roman church, which is what what we call the book of Romans, simply a letter to a congregation that he was going to come and visit with the hopes of being helped on by them into Spain, where at that point the gospel had not been preached and Paul was a missionary and his goal was to get there and to bring the gospel. And he had heard about this very important church, Rome, which he did not plant, had never visited but wanted to go visit them. He's teaching them, especially in these first eight chapters, about the gospel, the gospel about Jesus Christ and what God has done for sinners through Him in order to bring us into right relationship with God through faith, through the cross and the resurrection, and through faith in Him we become right with God. So he starts this first, this chapter with this first verse, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the heart of the good news. Then he goes on to explain in the rest of these verses more about the Holy Spirit. So whereas the first seven chapters focused on the person and work of Jesus the Son, the Son of God incarnate, now we're focusing on the Spirit within us, the presence of the Spirit who dwells within us. And through the Spirit, Christ dwells within us, the Father dwells within us. We are truly the temple of the living God, and that is significant And there are ways in which that needs to be applied and worked out, and that's what Romans 8, in part, is doing, okay? We've made our way to verses 12 through 17, and Graham preached on that last week, verses 12 and 13 specifically, but it should come as no surprise to most of you that I found some things in 12 and 13 I would also like to talk about, and so we're going to look at those again, as well as maybe move through a little bit more of that paragraph, verses 12 through 17. So let's just read it, and we'll do what we usually do, pray after that, ask God's blessing on the word preached, and we'll go from there. Verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are 
children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we also may be glorified with Him. Let's pause now and ask God's blessing on these verses. Father, I come before you now, as always, asking you to help us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand your word. May the Spirit just be working in me and everyone here, changing us. We need to hear from you, God. And so I pray that that would happen in this ordained means of preaching even though I am woefully inadequate to teach your truth and talk about these things, but your Spirit can make me sufficient and actually let everybody know then that these things are not in me or in my wisdom, but by your Spirit in an actual demonstration of it as lives are changed and new commitments are made. So I'm asking for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 12, and really verses 12 through 17, is a conclusion of sorts. He's drawing a conclusion to what he's been talking about in the verses before. The reason we know that is because if you look at verse 12, it begins with the words, so then... He's drawing a conclusion here about what he just talked about, about the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God dwelling within us, giving life to our mortal bodies, giving us new life in Christ that we experience right now, and even, verse 11, the eternal life to come on the day when Jesus himself calls all of our bodies out of the tomb and transforms, just like we read earlier in Philippians 3, transforms our lowly, dying, weak bodies to be like His glorious body. That is what some theologians have called the beatific vision. That is, when we see the risen glorious Christ as He is, we will become like Him. That's verse 11. But all of that comes with implications to it and applications to it for our lives right now, for your life right today and how you will live once you leave this room and go about doing whatever it is you got to do for the rest of the day. The fact that we have the Spirit in us and that we are the children of God and that Christ has died and has risen again for us is something that is supposed to be applied now into our lives. We cannot, remember we've talked about this, we cannot compartmentalize the gospel. Like the gospel isn't for our Sunday morning and our life in Christ Sunday morning and the rest of the week we get to just do whatever we want to do. The gospel always has the conclusion to it that this now must be put into practice into your life. So that what Paul is teaching, and he was very big on showing, look at 
We're justified by faith alone in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law. Praise God. But what he's showing is true faith will never be alone. It will be accompanied by transformation of life and the application of the gospel life into your life, you see, so that those around us, even those who don't know Jesus, will know that we know Jesus. Wasn't that one of the marks of the disciples, even by their persecutor? It was known that they had been with Jesus, you see. There's something evident to it. And I love the account in Antioch when the gospel reached Antioch among all those non-Jewish people, the Gentiles. And the Jewish church in Jerusalem heard that the gospel got there and people are claiming to believe in Jesus and claiming to be saved. And so they were quite concerned about this. What is going on there? Remember, Jerusalem was the church at that time. And so they sent a dispatch up there to look and says it was Barnabas, and he looks around, and he saw, listen to this, he saw the grace of God. And I remember that dawning on me once, and I preached that passage, and I said, everybody take out a piece of paper and draw a sketch of the grace of God for me. What does the grace of God look like? It looks like, in the case of Antioch, people turning from their sins. People turning from this world and the sins of it and turning to Christ. People beginning to live in this world as the disciples of Christ. And that looks different. What he saw in Antioch was true believers filled with the Spirit. When the Spirit is in a person, the Spirit changes the person. They become a new creation. They're born again. All things are new. Even the way they see things, it's new now. They walk, as Paul talked about in Romans 6, in the newness of life. The gospel always has that kind of conclusion to it. Take what I've just taught you. And don't just store it in your head, but let it infiltrate your heart and therefore work its way out into your life. And if you think about the implications and applications of the eternal triune God, creator of heaven and earth, sustainer of all life, giver of all things, everywhere present, all-powerful God, living, dwelling in you. Think of the implications to that. And here's what he draws in this conclusion in verse 12. So then, my brothers, we are debtors, but not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We are debtors not to the flesh or to live according to our sinful desires or perhaps even what Paul might be referring to in part is what he talked about in Philippians 3. Living according to the flesh would be for a Pharisee trying to earn his own right status before God by his good works and seeing how he can keep the law and become outwardly righteous. 
And Paul says, we're not indebted to the flesh. We've been delivered from it. And what's implied here, though not stated, but implied is that we are debtors to live now by the Spirit. The Spirit it dwells within us and empowers us to live for Jesus. Isn't that kind of, I mean, Christian, isn't that kind of instinctual to you? What debt do we owe to our former way of life? What good has sin ever done for you? Paul said back in chapter 5 of Romans, he said, What fruit do you have from the things of which you are now ashamed? As you think back to who you were before Jesus and the way you lived and the people you hurt and the things you did wrong, what fruit do you have from those things? Nothing but rotten fruit and hopefully bad memories to you and regret and shame. Thankful for the mercy of Jesus Christ who washes away all of those previous sins. But isn't it just a natural application like if that's what God has saved you from, then why do you live in it still as though you owe it something, you see? You owe it nothing except what Paul says here, put it to death. Mortify it. You kill it now by the Spirit's power Let me show you something. Look at Romans chapter 12, just a few pages to the right. Romans 12, verse 1. Something very similar being said here. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Similar exhortation as what we're seeing back in Romans chapter 8. He appeals to them as Christians, brothers, same thing as their brothers and sisters in Christ, sons of God, children of God. I'm appealing to you now. I'm exhorting you by the mercies of God. Everything that I've just explained to you, says Paul, in 11 chapters packed full of God's undeserved, amazing grace and mercy to you as a sinner. And I'm asking you, says Paul, to number those mercies as much as you can. And by those mercies now, you present not a part of you, Not even just your heart, as though we give our hearts alone to God. No, 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 no. You present your entire bodies to Him. Paul, of course, was a Jew, very familiar at that time with the temple there in Jerusalem and the sacrificial system of worship. This is Jewish sacrifice language. They would bring an animal to the temple and present it to the priest at the altar 
And do you know what would happen to that animal, of course? That animal wasn't leaving there. The person presenting the animal was leaving there, but that animal wasn't leaving there. They would take that animal and put it on the altar and kill it. They would sacrifice it. There was a death there involved. And he's saying, I want you to come to the altar and I want you to present your entire life to God as a living sacrifice. And he says, this is your reasonable service. When you take into account the mercies of God and the grace to you in Jesus Christ, this is your reasonable response. This is the true gospel conclusion, a living sacrifice to God. It is possible, friends. No, 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 probably more probable. And I speak from personal experience that we and you die, have ways and parts of us that we are not willing to get onto the altar and die to. Some Christians try to approach the altar like this and you, you're like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be a sacrifice to God now, so I'm just going to kind of lean on the altar a little bit, maybe lean in a little bit more and more once in a while. In all true gospel change, transformation, all true gospel usefulness, there's always a death. There's always death in order to live, beginning with our Savior. You must die in order to live. The problem is we have so many things in our lives that we don't want to die to. It is my suspicion that there could be people even in this room this morning and you know the things in your life to which God is saying, die to that so that you can live. The the offer of Christ is always, yes, I call you to die so that you can live. Mortify the deeds of the body because those who mortify the deeds of the body, they live. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. Those who live according to the flesh, though, they die. Jesus said, whoever would save his life in this world will what? Everybody say it. What will happen? They'll lose it. But whoever would lose his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. There's no half in and half out with Jesus. It was all or nothing. He warned the disciples about this. This is why in some ways, and Graham and I were talking about this in the issue of baptism, when, when a child wants to be baptized... On the one hand, we don't want to prevent them from being any kind of stumbling block to them believing in Jesus. But on the other hand, it's Jesus said, baptize disciples. And disciples are encouraged to count the cost before they sell out in Christ because it could even cost you your life to be a disciple of Jesus. 
the missionaries we want to take on, Peter and Keziah, it could cost them their lives. And how much are they leaving behind in order to go to a place that most of us would say, I don't want to go live there. For Christ, the discipleship is always expensive. But what the gospel says is that it's worth it. I learned this week from a Roman Catholic Trappist monk. And that will surprise my regular attenders here because I'm Protestant to the core of my being. But they were explaining the way of their monkness and they live in these (laughs) communities of people and they give their lives entirely to the pursuit of knowing God. The ones that are sincere, this is what they're supposed to be doing. We are giving ourselves together in this community of brotherhood to knowing God, so they're giving themselves all day to prayer. But they have to forsake, and there's actually a time and place when this has to happen. They've got to forsake everything that came before. They have to forsake the things of this world, even things they know are totally lawful for people to do, like be married and have family, and they say this good. They have to forsake it. They have to die that. But this one said this. He said, everything I've given up for God freed me up to know and love God more. That in other words, the sacrifice of being a living sacrifice, the sacrifice of dying and crawling on the altar to things that may be okay but aren't helping you any, or to things you know are wrong that you're doing, the sins you're living in, any sacrifice to that, any death to that is actually a freedom Because that thing now is behind, and here I am, my heart, my affections, my will, my mind, my body, my time is now freed for God. And what God says is, I'm infinitely better than any of that stuff. Don't forget, Christian, in Romans 8, Romans 1, where the problem with humanity is this, they don't want God They had him in their knowledge. They didn't want him. They suppressed the truth about him in their own unrighteousness. And they, Paul says, they worship and serve the creation instead of the creator. They love what God has given, but they don't love the God who gave it. Christians, on the other hand, have come to know who God truly is and the happiness he offers, not just in this life, but forever. And to see the illusion of this world for what it is, all that it offers, as you walk through Vanity Fair and it cries out to you how wonderful all these things are and all this, whatever it is that catches your attention. And God says, these were only designed to be reflections of my goodness and glory so that you would, yeah, use them but then use them to see me and worship me. And the problem is, is some of these good things in all of our lives, friends, what happens, they become too good to us. They become idols. 
Tim Keller said this, and I think he was right, that you can identify an idol of your heart when you find something in your life, could be anything, any activity, any relationship, any possession, any goal or dream, whatever it is, you can identify an idol because it's the thing you can't imagine your life without. That if it were taken from your life, you would be utterly lost and ruined. And God says, that's an idol. I'm the only one that can hold that kind of affection and attention in your heart. I'm it. We need to let the Spirit help us see the things in our life and the areas in our life in which we are not on that altar. Maybe all Christians go through a phase where you try to keep, you, you kind of try to walk the tightrope and balance like, I'll live, I'm going to live for Jesus, but yet there's still so many of these other things that I love. And you try to do that both-and thing that doesn't work. Present your body as a living sacrifice to God. Identify those things. And friends, put those desires to death, even if what it is that you're doing is not in itself a sin. People say to you, there's nothing wrong with this. You say, what's wrong with this is that it's preventing me from knowing and loving God more. And that's infinitely and eternally greater than anything in this world that could be offered to me. You know, Jesus said, no, scratch that. Not that we want to scratch what Jesus said. I'm saying I'm going to skip that. Go to Philippians 3. Let's, let's, go, let's, let's spend a few more minutes here. I want to point out a few things that the Lord showed me. That's on page 1249 again. Paul, of course, is recounting, he's warning these believers there in Philippi about Jewish men who were claimed to be Christians, but the problem is they wanted to come in among non-Jewish people, make them come in under the law. And, you, you, you know, it was kind of like Jesus plus your works, that will get you into heaven. And so he's warning these, about these kinds of people and he recounts the fact like if they think they have something to boast about in their flesh and in what they do, I've got way more than that. So he recounts his lineage and he could trace it still back to Benjamin. He talks about his time as a Pharisee, all these things. But then there came that point, remember when Jesus appeared to Paul going more by his uh, Jewish name at that time, Saul, and he appears to him on the road to Damascus, and he saves him, calls him to himself, you're going to be my Gentile to the nations. And everything changed for Paul. And in that moment, in the ensuing moments, he lost everything, all his status as a Jew, 
he was not only not accepted anymore among the religious elite, but he was cast out from them. He was persecuted by them. He lost everything that he had worked for and tried to gain and worked so hard to attain in his status. But he says in verse 7, listen to this, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Could you say that? Could you lose everything, everything you have, everything you worked for, for the sake of knowing Christ now? And look back on it and say, I count it like rubbage, refuse, garbage, and then some is what Paul is saying. Could you look back on it and say that? Because what have I gained? I've gained Christ. I have Him now. I have suffered the loss of all things for His sake. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And listen to this, that I may know Him. I suffered the loss of all things that I may know Him. And the power of His resurrection may share in His suffering, becoming like Him in His death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Friends, what is it that you're clinging to in your life? What relationship, what career, what sin, what entertainment, what hobby, whatever it is, what are you clinging to that's stopping you from knowing more Jesus. Actually experiencing in your life the power of His resurrection. I think that the Spirit of God works in such a way that as the people of God think about it, if there is something there and as they pray about it, He'll show it to them. I would suspect it's one of the first things that pop into your mind. This is slowing down my relationship with Jesus Christ. This is slowing down my knowing Him and experiencing the power of His resurrection. Paul would tell you, it's not worth holding on to. I, in a unique way, says Paul, I lost everything. Most Christians aren't even called to do that. Paul was called to lose everything for the sake of Christ, to suffer for Him all the rest of His days right until they marched Him in the city of Rome out to have His head chopped off for proclaiming Christ. He lost it all, but He said, I gained Christ, and I look at everything I lost like rubbish because Christ is so infinitely greater if we believe that then. And we believe not only in this life will we experience joy and peace, which 
Some of you may have not felt in years, if ever, because you're trying to find joy and peace in the things of the world. It can't give it to you. It can only promise it. It cannot deliver. You're not experiencing joy and peace, the power in your life of His resurrection, because you're clinging to things He's saying, you've got to die to this. You've got to put it to death. You've got to mortify that desire in your life. You can't keep working this out. You need to be willing, as Paul said, to suffer the loss of all things. That means to experience the loss of something with implication, listen to this, of undergoing hardship or suffering. To suffer damage, loss, forfeit, sustain injury. When he says, I suffered the loss of all things, that's what he means. I lost all things and I suffered for it. Because whenever there needs to be a death in our life, whenever something needs to be left behind, whenever we need to turn our back on something, it's going to hurt. And we have desires that still want it. Those, by the way, are the desires, Paul says, put to death by the Spirit now. We can't mess around with these things. And for those who do it, the promise is life and peace. Aren't you glad there in Philippians 3 that Paul says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. He understood that he's not perfect, he, that he's not obtained this completely. But what does he do? And what are you to do now? I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's why I'm not doing this to get saved. I'm doing this because I'm saved. I'm doing this because I have tasted that God is good and I want more of him in his, my life. And more than that, I want him forever and ever. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Some of you need to, you're thinking to yourself, perhaps, you're a little bit overwhelmed because you're thinking, there's so much in my life and I'm just not growing and I've done so many things wrong, even as a Christian, and I, I'm overwhelmed by this. What would Paul say right now? You put that behind you now. One of the glorious truths about the gospel is every day is a new gospel beginning in which you can pick up that day and follow Christ. This is why Jesus taught his disciples, take up your cross daily now and follow me, you see. It's every single day. Forget those things, confess those things, put those things behind, and now strain forward, right, to what lies ahead. There's always that future-oriented goal of the Christian life that's always moving forward and never looking behind. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in God in Christ Jesus. It's that upward call of God, friends. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's where the call is issued from. That's where Jesus in this day and age says, trust me and follow me now. Follow me as one of my disciples. And then he says, verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way, and I love it. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. So if you disagree with what I'm saying, 
I say, okay, God will eventually show you too that this is the way. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Friends, aren't you grateful that Jesus Christ, being the author and finisher of our faith, the real pioneer of our faith, modeled this for us perfectly in His life? Have you ever seen a life more devoted to God, more devoted to the good of His people, more devoted to God's mission in this life than in Jesus Christ? And what has He done? He lived that perfect life and He poured Himself out on the cross to cover all your sins. Past, present, future, died for them, paid the penalty, not for His own sins, but for yours and mine, all those He would call to Himself. Pays for their sins completely, friends, so that even in a moment like this, this doesn't have to become a sermon that you just feel guilty and leave here feeling guilty. You leave hopeful, resting in Jesus Christ. I am not already perfect, but He is I am not already glorified, but He is. I have not been raised from the dead yet, but He has. And He's in heaven, and He's interceding for me at the right hand of the Father. His righteousness is my own. My sin was laid on Him. It has been cared for. God looks upon me now as one of His beloved children, loves me and cares for me. And then you let that mercy and that grace that comes from Jesus Christ in the gospel motivate you now to pick up and say, okay, here I am, Lord. I'm going to live for you. That thing or those things that are slowing down my walk, I renounce them. I turn from them by the power of the Spirit. I take up my cross today and I follow after Jesus Christ. You will not regret that. We will not regret that. Let us be a church who is wanting to know Christ more, that that is the drive of our life. And then, of course, to make Him known to other people. The difference that they'll see in us, friends, that they don't find in the rest of the world is hope and joy and peace and love and life, and light, and truth, and righteousness. May it be true of Calvary Bible Church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We profess with Jesus that it is truth, and it is that by which you sanctify us and set us apart in this world as we come now to the table to remember the death of Christ. May we remember that he died so that we can live live for you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.